Rediscover travel with NetJets, the worldwide leader in private aviation. NetJets offers personalized solutions to meet and exceed the unique needs of discerning travelers like you. Pairing the largest private jet fleet in the world with an unmatched commitment to safety and service makes NetJets the ultimate solution. To speak with a private aviation expert, visit NetJets.com. It's a very brutal, nasty history, and it's true that we don't think about that. We think about the art and the culture, and people talk about being the modern Medici. Hi, I'm Ben Davis, sitting in today for Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News, bringing each week's biggest art news story down to earth. If you're a fan of Italian Renaissance art, and you are in New York, right now the Metropolitan Museum of Art has a treat for you. It's called The Medici, Portraits and Politics, 1512 to 1570, and it offers a spectacular sampling of 90 works of art from Florence's 16th century. But there's a twist. It probably comes as no surprise to anyone listening to this, that Italian Renaissance art was connected to the most powerful people in society. Still, even today, if you call someone a Medici, you probably mean to say that they are a visionary patron of the arts, when it could just as well mean that you were calling them a ruthless oligarch. And this exhibition actually tries to show how some of the classics of art in this time were not just works of beauty or something the Medici happened to do on the side, but part of a canny, carefully calibrated political PR campaign that deliberately shaped how the public sees this family in their time and up to our own. Art historian Eleanor Hartney wrote an essay for Artnet News looking at the Met show and the world of the Medici, asking how the history behind the art changes how we look at what the Metropolitan Museum accurately advertises as some of the most famous European paintings of all time. I'm very pleased to have Eleanor on the podcast today. Eleanor, thanks for coming on The Art Angle. I'm glad to be here. So you have this review of the Met's new Portraits and Power show, which is about the art history, and the Medici family. And I think that five centuries later, people still know the Medici name and mainly think of them as these outstanding patrons of the Italian Renaissance. So let's just start with them in broad outlines. What is the story of the Medici family, both in politics and in art? Well, I should start by saying I am not a scholar of the Renaissance. So what I did in writing this article, I I sort of plunged into this world that I had a kind of very superficial knowledge of, and it turned out to be a really fascinating ride. And the show really does reveal aspects of Medici patronage and the Medici family that aren't really part of our common acquaintance. Basically, The story of the Medici is one of power and patronage, as the title of the show says. The Medicis were a banking family, and in the 15th century, they rose to power. They were very influential. There were three generations of Medicis who really shaped the politics and the cultural heritage of Florence. But what's so interesting is that they did so while still under the ostensible idea that Florence was a republic. And this is, I think, a very important thing in the saga that the exhibition tells, because 
as a republic, Florence had leading citizens. There was a form of democracy. There was civil dissent, etc. And the Medicis were very powerful, but they were not the absolute rulers. What they were, were, as I said, very powerful bankers, very influential family, constantly fighting actually with the other families. But they were also big supporters of the arts. And when we think of Medicis and we talk about the modern Medicis, and we're often thinking about Lorenzo de' Medici, who was the last of this first round of Medicis. Lorenzo the Magnificent. Lorenzo the Magnificent, exactly. And he was, of course, a patron of all of our favorite Renaissance artists, Leonardo, Michelangelo, Raphael, Botticelli, etc. When he died in 1492, then there was a huge uproar against his son, who he tried to install. And the Medicis were basically thrown out of Florence, and they were in exile for quite a few years. And this was a period in which the Republic went through all kinds of changes, The immediate successor of the Medicis was Savonarola, the fanatical Dominican monk who burned the art and was himself later burned at the stake. So, I mean, there was just a lot of turmoil there. And so there were years in which the Medici family were trying to get back into power. And finally, in 1512, they were able to return to the city and to begin to exert influence again. They did this in part through infiltrating the papacy. They installed two Medicis as popes, and they were very helpful in getting them back into power because they had alliances with Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor. So there was this whole period of upheaval, and there were sieges, and there were plagues, and there were assassinations, and all kinds of things going on. And finally, they managed to install really the last of the line of the first Medici family of Lorenzo's immediate family, Alessandro, who was a complete dissolute and was not too long afterwards assassinated by a distant cousin in a move that many people applauded as a tyrannicide, a killing of the tyrant. And so at this point, things were looking pretty bad for the Medici family, and they didn't have direct descendants of Lorenzo. So They turned to a lesser branch of the family, and there was a young man, 17 years old, Cosimo de' Medici, and they installed him as the new leader of the Medici family and the one who was going to try to be the ruler of Florence. Everyone assumed that he would be either assassinated, as many of his predecessors had been, or that he would be a very weak ruler. It would be easy for the other families of Florence to guide and to take over. But in fact, he turned out to be this amazingly astute political leader. And he was able to marshal forces. He was able to make alliances. And because of him, the Medicis ended up ruling Florence for the next two centuries. And one of the things he did, and this was a big break actually from the first round of Medicis, was that he installed himself as Duke. He became the ruler. The other Medicis were not officially rulers. It was still a republic. But with Cosimo, it was no longer a republic. As a matter of fact, I think that his official title was something like the Duke of the Florentine Republic, the absolute monarch of democracy. It's actually kind of a funny title. Exactly. And this is a thing that comes up in the show. I think he modeled himself in many ways on Augustus Caesar's. 
here you are, you're coming out of the Renaissance. And the Renaissance, of course, was sparked by the rediscovery of the classical world, the Greek and Roman world. And so the Florentine Republic always kind of saw itself as a successor to the Roman Republic, which, of course, ended with the assassination of Julius Caesar. So that was followed then by the Roman Empire and Augustus Caesar, who was the one who really set it on its way. So in many ways, Cosimo modeled himself consciously, and many of the artists and writers of the time helped him in this as sort of the new Caesar Augustus of Florence. So it's very interesting the way that the past kept coming up and governing the way that people thought about Florence and what it was and what its possibilities were. And he took that and he used that to help in the popular mind give himself legitimacy. Right. So, and I guess maybe this is my own present projecting into the past, but what I take away from all of this is that when we think of the Renaissance now, we think of the art and that the actual political history of the period is just incredible period of turmoils and reversals and the Medici at the heart of it all kind of originating the archetype of the banking business family who rises to prominence and then becomes so enamored of their own self-importance that they buy their way into government, becoming literal popes and monarchs, and then at the same time sort of originating the archetype of using patronage of the arts to cover all that over. Absolutely. I mean, that's what's so fascinating about this story. They didn't just buy their way in. I mean, it was through assassination, through sieges, laying waste to other city-states. It's a very brutal, nasty history. And it's true that we don't think about that. We think about the art and the culture and people talk about being the modern Medicis. This is seen as being, you know, kind of benevolent patron of the arts. But in fact, the brutality really and the culture were kind of hard to separate. I mean, this question of how is it that it was possible for Cosimo and for Lorenzo before him to create and to patronize all this art, well, behind it was the sword. Yeah, and I always think it's this kind of historical irony and maybe tells you a lot about how history gets written that we think of the Medici name means great patron of the arts and the name Machiavelli forever means evil, cynical, corrupt, but the Medici were the dictators and Machiavelli was actually on the side of the Florentine Republic. That's right, yes. And he was simply trying to give rules for how a ruler could hang on to power. He was very much opposed to everything that the Medici stood for. So you're an art historian, and this show, as you say, starts with Cosimo de' Medici. It's not the high renaissance of Leonardo and Michelangelo. This is a different period of art. And as you say, the art is doing a little bit of a different thing. And technically, this is the period we call mannerism. Let's get nerdy and talk about that term. What does that mean uh, both historically and in terms of art? The High Renaissance was associated with this return to humanism. It was inspired by reacquaintance with classical models and work of people like Leonardo and Michelangelo associated also with a kind of naturalism and a kind of penetration of the soul in a way. The Mannerist period that followed it and which was patronized by Cosimo was very different to our modern eyes. It seems very artificial. It's exaggerated. Where the Renaissance was about harmony and balance and beauty, 
mannerism is really about a kind of exaggeration, like Pantormo's Madonna with the long neck, these physical impossibilities, basically. Now, you don't see that so much in this show, although Bronzino, certainly in his allegorical work, did work that was very sort of exaggerated, unnatural and artificial looking. But I think what does make this work mannerist is that it's very much about a kind of elegant surface and about sort of not going below that. And that, I think, was part of what made it so useful in a way to Cosimo. He wanted to be seen as a warrior, but not as a kind of brutal autocrat. And so the paintings that you see of him in this show, it's very elegant and calm. And you don't really feel that you get beyond the surface in a way. It's almost like he's wearing a mask in these paintings. And so he could disseminate these paintings. And paintings were disseminated the way that now, I guess, you know, if you wanted a photograph of the president or something, they were disseminated to allies and to patrons, et cetera, people that Cosimo was trying to get favors to or create alliances with. And so they were really kind of very symbolic in a way. They weren't really meant to be pictures of the soul. They weren't meant to really get you down into the real personality. And so there's a sort of interesting blandness to a lot of the portraits in the show and the faces in the show. In later years, mannerism is often seen as being a kind of falling off from the high achievements of the Renaissance because it is so artificial looking. So why don't you tell me what you see when you go into the Metropolitan Museum to see the show? The show is divided into several sections that sort of tell the history, but tell the history through portraits. You see a kind of evolution in the show from the early portraits during the kind of more tumultuous period when the Republicans and Medicis were sort of fighting it out. And you see portraits that are kind of much more somber and they are more subdued in a way. Then you come into the period of Cosimo and these beautiful, opulently painted portraits with incredible attention to the details of clothing and of ornaments. There's also various non-art objects, weaponry, coins. Actually, it's very interesting. There's a lot of coins which show the other aspect of Medici patronage, which was, of course, the public work. They were commemorated with these coins. So you see those. Then you move to the various characters. And that was one thing I found really fascinating, that you have all these paintings of characters in the saga of the rise and long tenure of Cosimo de' Medici. The two Medici popes who helped him gain power presented in a way that's sort of very much against their historical reputations. These were the popes that lost half of the church to the Reformation and were famous for their licentiousness, their power struggles, etc. But you see them painted here as these very sober and responsible-looking characters. And then there's also a very interesting section, which is a kind of face-off, in a way, between Bronzino, the star of the show, and Salvietti, who was a a member of one of the other banking families, a family somewhat in opposition to the Medici. And you see the difference in style. And you see on the one hand, the sort of very polished, chilly elegance of Bronzino. And you see this kind of more emotional, even sort of fantasy-oriented, allegorical aspect of Salvietti. It was almost like rival political branding. Yes, (laughs) yes, exactly. Rival political branding you see going on. 
So you're telling this very tumultuous history and you're telling it through the portraits, which are the kind of official stories. And yet you see other little aspects seep through the branding. And so it's not a completely smooth story. But in a way, I guess it seems, perhaps seems very modern to us. It's kind of a form of public relations. And I think you can view a lot of the stuff in this show through the lens of, you know, this very carefully crafted image management for a European politician, essentially. Yes, that's actually a point that the curators make in the show. And I think it really is part of why it has such an interesting appeal today is they are carefully curating their images, just as people do on social media. It's very carefully crafted and they're very aware of what the image means, you know, what the image conveys. And when he came to power, there were certain things he had to do. First of all, he had to establish his lineage to Lorenzo in the first branch of the Medicis because he was in a kind of lesser branch of the family. He was not a direct relation and he used art to establish these connections. He also needed to project a certain kind of image to the populace, a certain kind of benevolent ruler. And so the art was also very useful in that way. And he also needed to use the art as a way of creating allies. I mean, one of his most important allies was the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. And he got that alliance actually through his marriage to his wife, Eleonora de Toledo, who turns out to be a very formidable woman. There's a number of interesting portraits of her. But again, like the portraits of Cosimo, they're very mask-like. You don't really get into the surface of the person. It, it does feel like it's sort of pure image. It's branding, really, in many ways. Yeah, well, maybe let's talk a little bit about Eleonora de Toledo. So what was her role? And these paintings of her, what role did they serve? There were paintings of her alone, paintings with her children, because she bore Cosimo 11 children, which is sort of astounding. So she was very good at bringing him heirs, because that was a problem that, as I say, the first branch of the Medici's ran out of heirs because of assassinations and deaths in war and et cetera, et cetera. So there were 11 children there. So there was assured to be an heir. So a lot of the paintings show her with the children, with the boys especially. But she was also an advisor to her husband. She was a very well-placed woman. Her family was connected to the Holy Roman Emperor, who turned out to be a very important ally for Cosimo. And she was also a patroness of the art in her own right. So the portraits of her, I think, place her at the center of this new Medici dynasty. So, as you say, this artist Agnolo Bronzino is sort of the star of this show. How would you describe his relationship to the Medici, and how would you describe his style? It's really, like, high mannerist. He was a student of Pantormo, who was also one of the artists who really sort of made the break from the Renaissance style. When Cosimo and Eleonora were married. There was a huge pageantry where all kinds of temporary artistic like floats and parades, etc. There was lots of spectacle. And Bronzino was part of that. He was one of the artists who was asked to create some of these decorations, basically, for the wedding. And Cosimo ended up really connecting with him. And he ended up being basically the official portrait painter of the Medici dynasty. So in this show, there are far more paintings by Bronzino than any other artist. And 
what I did find interesting is that there's a kind of sameness to them. There's a kind of finish, a mask-like quality. They feel like they are very much a part of this idea of branding. You know, there are other artists in the show whose work also partakes of the mannerist style, but I think they have more life in them. But Cosimo really, I think, gravitated to Bronzino because he was able to really consistently create this image, which was the image that Cosimo was trying to cultivate. And for me, that's always been part of mannerism is the kind of, yeah, like you said earlier, the attention to surfaces so that it's almost a little inhuman. And that both makes it feel a little troubling and kind of contemporary in the sense that it's almost like sometimes the costumes are more alive than the people. Yes, that's right. And I found it interesting that in a lot of the writing about this show, people sort of quickly move on from the portraits themselves and talk about the beauty of the garments. And in fact, there is even an actual garment, a dress that was probably worn by Eleonora in the show. They're just beautifully painted and it's an art of surfaces. And you're right, in that sense, there is something that maybe is more contemporary, that there's a kind of abstraction, really, of the faces, an abstraction of the forms that's accompanied by this kind of intense focus on the beauty of the silks or the jewels and making you realize that they were made rulers because they fitted a certain role and that these paintings helped to ensure that they seem to really belong in that role. So another thing you'll see a lot of in this show is weaponry. I mean, literal, actual weapons. As you said, Cosimo was a military figure and projected his power as such. And Bronzino often famously paints Cosimo in armor. There are also these other depictions of him that are allegorical, are Cosimo nude, playing the lute as a mythological figure, as Orpheus. And I think that the projections of him as a general or military man probably read very clearly to people in the present, but the mythological ones, what kind of power they're projecting might be a little more enigmatic. I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine an official portrait of, say, the president in the nude. Yeah, yeah, we're talking um, a picture of, like, the president <laughs> nude on a bearskin rug. That, that kind yeah, of image. Yeah. <laughs> no, you, you wouldn't do that today. Well, I think that there were several things. Part of that was the portrait of Cosimo as Orpheus, of course, emphasizes his artistic side. You know, Orpheus being, of course, a god of music. There's the famous story where his wife died and he tried to follow her down into the underworld and playing the music, he was able to get down to the underworld to try to rescue her. But then he was told that he could only bring her out if he didn't look back. He looked back and she had to go back forever. And it's kind of this very tragic story. But it also emphasized him both as a kind of tragic figure, but also as one who was sort of very faithful to his wife. So that would, of course, have some resonance in terms of his relationship to Eleonora. I think that one of the reasons for these allegorical portraits was, again, to cement this notion of a continuity with the classical past, that it was very important for both in the High Renaissance and in the Mannerist period in the 15th and the 16th century for Italians to feel that they were connected to that classical past, which had recently been rediscovered and explored. And so there was this effort to find models in the past 
when Alessandro de' Medici was assassinated, his assassin was seen as Brutus, going back to the killer of Julius Caesar. And Cosmo himself wanted to be thought of in terms of Augustus Caesar, who himself declared himself a god. So the mythological figures were part of being, I think, this tie back to this great classical past. And it was a past in which Italy was a very important and Rome was a very important power, but also that it was a place where the arts were cultivated and philosophy was cultivated and it was a place of high culture. So it's a way of creating, I think, a bridge between the past and the present. I mean, we see a little bit of that here, I guess, you know, we're always thinking about the founding fathers and the connection between past and present in that way. But in this case, it was done through these allegorical figures. Right. It's a political mythology. People are costuming themselves up in a political mythology that connects them to both the spiritual and higher values and political lineage, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So I think that if you were to just ask the person on the street to name a Renaissance artist, they'd probably say Michelangelo. And something I thought was really interesting about your review is the way you talk about the figure of Michelangelo in this show and how he's kind of absent from the show. You know, it's not really his time period. There's a painting of Michelangelo in the show, but no paintings by Michelangelo. But you write, Michelangelo posed a problem for Cosimo, nevertheless. And in your review, talking about, you know, the shadow that he casts over the show. And, and what do you mean by that? You're right. I think that the man in the street would probably name Michelangelo as the most important or the most famous Renaissance artist. And if you ask what's the most famous Renaissance work by Michelangelo, he might very well say Michelangelo's David. And Michelangelo's David was created when the Republic was embattled. And it was really intended by Michelangelo as a symbol of the importance of the Republic here. David, the shepherd boy who destroys the giant Goliath and brings his people back out of tyranny. In some ways, Goliath was the Medici, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that is what I think Michelangelo had in mind. He hated the Medici. So when the Medici came back the second time around and Cosimo basically ended the Republic and became a autocratic ruler, Michelangelo left Florence never to return. The problem was that Michelangelo was then, and as he is now, probably the most famous Florentine artist. And he went to Rome and he spent the rest of his life working there. Cosimo kept trying to lure him back because, again, he's looking for legitimacy, not only politically, but culturally. But Michelangelo could give that to him, but Michelangelo refused. So when Michelangelo died, Cosimo engineered the return of his body to Florence And then he had another one of these great big pageants that the public loved. And it was a huge celebration. And basically what he did or was trying to do was to cement Michelangelo back into Florentine history and into the history of the Medici as the rulers of Florence. So in the show, there is only one portrait of Michelangelo, no works by Michelangelo, because, of course, he was gone at this time. And yet. A lot of the paintings, even by Bronzino, copy 
poses of figures in Michelangelo's paintings. He was very much on everyone's mind and very much in everyone's consciousness. Meanwhile, of course, the sculpture of David, which remained in Florence throughout the whole Medici period, was there sort of as this symbol of everything that the Medici had overthrown. And so they, of course, kept it because it was such a important sculpture. But at the same time, it was very problematic. And so that's why Cosimo, at the end of Michelangelo's life, tried to sort of recuperate him back. But Michelangelo's David is really an enduring symbol of the fight against tyranny. And this was something that Cosimo really could not change. I do think that it's news to a lot of people, the um, intricacy of the political dynamics there. And I love the story of him staging this posthumous party for Michelangelo in Florence to kind of claim his memory, because it really shows that the way art has sculpted our memory of this time period isn't just something that happened because we like to remember the pretty things and the kind of ugly stuff below it kind of drops away over time but it was really a conscious operation by the people who were doing it oh yes again that's the story of this show what Cosimo wanted to do was to in a way kind of rewrite the history of the renaissance putting Florence and himself at the center of the whole thing. And you're right, that does kind of remain what we know and remember of the Renaissance. The Florence that we see when we go to Florence was very much created by Cosimo. I mean, through great public works and civic buildings and much of what you see was the result of his efforts, much in the same way that Napoleon III kind of created the Paris that we know today. So Part of the story is, yes, what power and money and art together can do. But then I really do feel that part of the other part of the story is that art can sometimes slip out from the cracks. Art is not so completely malleable. And great art, particularly the art of someone like Michelangelo, is something that even the most powerful autocrat cannot fully control. Well, that takes me to the last question I wanted to ask you, which is, this show at the Metropolitan Museum is leaning into this narrative about the power and the politics behind the paintings. And I was just wondering if you thought that that was a new development in how this story gets told for the public. Do you think that reflects the present or is this how it's always been told and it just somehow resonates more with the present? Yeah, I thought it was interesting that the Met chose to focus on this period. Part of it is that it is a period that we're not so familiar with. But you're right. I can't help feeling that part of it is also because questions about patronage and power and politics are very much in the air right now. It's not so much the political leaders now who are using art. In fact, they're more likely to be using social media to craft their images. Certainly we saw that in the last administration. But on the other hand, art is something that has been very much taken and supported by patrons who perhaps are trying to whitewash their image, take some kind of attention away from other activities, all the controversy about the Sacklers, who were such great patrons of the art, and now their name is being stripped from many museums because of their connection to the opioid crisis. So these questions of power and patronage, I think, are kind of eternal. And it's like, what is the role that art plays? And so having this show right now is something that makes us 
think about that and maybe gives us another kind of perspective, a historical perspective on it, but also raises questions about what happens when art serves politics and power and what are the limits of power's ability to use art for its own purposes? Well, I think that's an excellent question to end the conversation on. So thank you very much, Eleanor. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also take a moment to rate and review us. We will help other listeners discover what we're doing. And if you have some feedback or maybe a recommendation for a future episode, go ahead and email us at podcasts at artnet.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at artnet.com. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next time.